churches are probably transitioning to other series this week and going to different parts of the Bible. But I, I was thinking about what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says to Timothy, all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And I think we would all say that, yeah, we believe that. All of scripture is God-breathed and it's useful, and it's useful to train us up in, in righteousness and transform us. But we probably wouldn't say it. But I think sometimes we treat parts of the Bible like they're not, kind of like they're a little bit obsolete. Parts of it, they might be archaic or worse yet, uh, embarrassing to our modern context because it's hard to make sense of. So better not go there. And if we were to talk about those books, Leviticus would probably be up there. There's a sacrificial system in there that's been done away with. There's a rules for living that don't always make a lot of sense to our, our current context and our current culture. They're just head scratchers. So sometimes we'll just skip over it, skim through it, and never wrestle with it, right? It's, it's the part of your reading plan where you might just skip it entirely. You might just start scrolling. If you're on an iPad, iPad, just scroll a little faster, right? But I think that would be wrong because it would be like handling it like it's not living and active, not God-breathed and useful. And when you look at the book of Leviticus, if you believe that the, the God's word is his words, there's more direct speech from God in Leviticus than any other book in the Bible. If we believe that the Bible is the word of God, again, there's more explicit word of God there than anywhere else. Jews in Jesus' day, uh, some historians say that they would have known three books of the Bible uh, more prominently, more, almost said more better. They would have known three books of the Bible more than any other. It would have been Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Leviticus. Those were the three that they would have focused on. And the New Testament, when you get past the Easter story, it points again and again back to the rituals that are found in Leviticus, the sacrifices and the offerings and the practices, because all of those foreshadow what Jesus Christ did at the cross. As we talked about last week in our Easter sermon, all of the Bible is either preparation for Jesus Christ, it's a presentation of Jesus Christ, or it's about the church participating in the work of Jesus Christ and the work he gave us as the church. But again, on Easter, we celebrate that the veil was torn. And if somebody was dropping some heavy words on you on Easter, they might have said words like propitiation and expiation, these big words that carry deep meaning. And you can define those in a vacuum, but they carry an even deeper meaning when you understand the context that is coming from in the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus. So when you consider all of the above, you can begin to shape an argument that Leviticus, when it's read with an open mind and a curious spirit and a hungry heart, can teach us about as much about the Christian walk in Jesus Christ as any book in the Bible. But it's often uh, ignored, so it's best to probably give context for those who walked in here like, what's a Leviticus? <laughs> like, just looking at the, what is a Leviticus? But it starts where Exodus ended. Right? Moses takes the Israelites out of Egypt, right? He, he brings them out of slavery. And, and here in Leviticus, we've got a nation of freshly liberated slaves in the Sinai Desert receiving instruction in order to be shaped and become God's chosen nation and his people. And we're not going to go verse by verse through Leviticus. And in spite of all the glowing things I just said about Leviticus, most of you guys are probably pretty happy about that. But I do want to look at Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, because it informs really the entire path of the Old Testament, and it informs the book that we're about to dive into. But even before we get there to preface that, you look at the book of Exodus, right, preceding Leviticus. And in Exodus 24, we've got the, the Israelites at Sinai, 
where God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments, and he's downloading what the tabernacle is going to look like, and he's, he's imparting all these things. And it says in Exodus chapter 24, verse 16, that the cloud covered Mount Sinai, and the Lord called to Moses from the cloud. But then we see here in Exodus 40, after they'd taken those instructions, after they had built the tabernacle, it says in Exodus chapter 40, verse 38, it tells us that the cloud now covers the tabernacle. And in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So God's presence had moved from settling on Mount Sinai to settling on the tabernacle, as we see here. And this was a massive step from one phase of God's relationship with his people to the next, where he was unknown, and they, they might even ask, who is this God that's sending you? And he gives Moses his name, but here he's revealing himself in deeper ways, not just to Moses, but to the nation. But the transi- transition I want to look at even more closely is the transition from Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, to Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. See, at the end of Exodus, we see that God's presence was so thick in the tabernacle that he couldn't even enter into the tabernacle itself. And so at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, it says that the Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle. But then it's interesting. It's Numbers chapter 1, verse 1 is almost the same beginning, but it says the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. And this is the, the issue, the problem, the, the, what Leviticus tackles, this idea, how do we go from a relationship at a distance to an intimate interaction with an infinite God? How do an unholy people have a relationship and worship a holy God? Now, I don't know how many of you have, have had long-distance relationships in your life. I met with somebody this week. I mean, thank you to everybody who's ever served in the military that willingly steps into long-distance marriages, long-distance uh, relationships for a season to serve our country and to serve us. But I know myself Steph and I, we were a long-distance relationship across the state. Maybe you guys have had long-distance relationships where it was across the country. You're blowing money on plane tickets. You're blowing money on gas. You're learning about all the, the cool stuff and the new technology like FaceTime, all these different ways you can connect. But then you're probably finding all these different ways that it can fail you when the connection is lost and your loved person's face just becomes a few pixels and is frozen there's frustrations with long-distance relationships. I don't think they're ever, they're never the goal. It's never the, the long-term goal is to have a long-distance relationship. At some point, hopefully, the goal is, hey, we're going to come together and be able to do life intimately together, right, in flesh and blood. But I say all that because I think some of us have long-distance relationships with God. We've kind of just settled into it. That's just our norm, where God seems pretty far away, rather than closer than the air we breathe. And the idea of a deep and personal relationship with God, it might seem a little foreign to us. You know, so many people think of God being somewhere out there, out there somewhere, rather than in our midst, overwhelmingly present with us. It's kind of just fractures or fractions of this deism where, where God created things, but he's not actively involved in the workings of the world or the workings of our lives. He's not working it all together for good. But the theism of the Bible shows a God who promises to be with us in our trials, to use them to our benefit, to grow us and shape us in his image. Psalm 139 says if we tried to run from his presence, even if we wanted to, we couldn't, <laughs> right? One of the prophetic names of Jesus in the Old Testament is Emmanuel, God with us, present with us in, in every season. 
And a promise of Leviticus towards the end of the book was that an obedient Israel would experience a God who will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And this phrase, walk among you, it's powerful because it it echoes back to the, the beginning of Genesis when he walked in the garden with Adam where we were created for this relationship with God, this intimate communion with God. And you don't have to raise your hand for this one, but how many of you have been through a a pretty serious disagreement in your relationship? Again, don't raise hands. (laughs) If you're probably sitting next to your spouse, you might be in one right now. But if you've been in a serious disagreement with a loved one where there's a rift in the relationship, you probably realize that it doesn't matter where the other person is because if you've ever cross through conflict with somebody, you can be two feet from somebody physically and miles apart relationally, miles apart spiritually and psychologically. But you can be two feet from them, but there's just a wall and you feel so distant. And that kind of gets to the bottom of what we're dealing with here. Because again, we're created for communion and relationship with God, but sin fractures that relationship. But I also want to be clear. When I joke about long-term relationships, and then talk about our relationship with God. And when I talk about issues in your relationship with a loved one and then talk about your relationship with God, this is a a deeper relationship. This kind of relationship is one between a creator and the created, between a king and his subjects. This isn't some lover's quarrel or a clash between two infatuated equals. This is between us and our creator, us and our king. It's not a relationship where you look in life where you're trying to operate as mutuals, uh, with mutual respect, with, as equals. This relationship with our king and our creator is based on worship. God's creation, worshiping its creator. And in Leviticus, we see that restoration was made to restore Israel's worship and to restore it to a place of loving relationship. Again, it might not be like our loving relationship with the people you're sitting next to, but if you look at the, the pagan gods of the ancient world, and their quote-unquote personalities, they were hardly holy in any moral sense. They were petulant, they were selfish, they were vindictive. So to worship these pagan gods was intended to manipulate them, to appease them, but not to love them or be loved by them. So Leviticus, it presents a radically different posture of worship to an utterly different God than anything that is on the planet. And right worship is a key concern all through Leviticus. We see that the redemption and deliverance of Exodus, it sets up the establishment of right worship in Leviticus. And maybe you're thinking like after that amazing worship that we had, like worship? <laughs> I read through Leviticus, I don't see like worship because we so often think of worship as a genre of music on iTunes or on Spotify and that's it. But one theologian called Leviticus the one book of the Bible almost wholly dedicated to worship. See, communion with God is the very essence of worship, and Leviticus is what shows the people of God how to walk in this intimate relationship with their infinite creator. You know, we worship God in, in, in multiple ways, right? There's our private devotion that worships God. There's our public service that worships God. And then there's group celebrations, corporate worship, like what we experienced tonight that worships God. And we see all three represented in Leviticus. So just to give a quick, broad view of the book of Leviticus, you can kind of break it down like this. It kind of comes full circle with the Day of Atonement at the heart of Leviticus. The first 10 chapters, right, they don't, they don't kind of ease you in. They just jump right into the sacrifices, chapters 1 through 10. And then it talks a little bit about the priest roles as mediators. But then in chapters 11 through 15, we get laws about being clean or unclean. 
about purity. And then again in chapter 16 through 17, at the heart of Leviticus, we get the Day of Atonement. It's this once a year uh, a sacrifice of two goats. One was the purification offering, which we'll get to in a second. And the other was this scapegoat cast out into the wilderness, bearing the sins of the Israelites. It was a powerful symbol of God removing sin from his people so that they could enter into relationship with him. And then we see it begins to go full circle. You have clean and unclean purity, and then you got moral purity in chapters 18 through 20. And then in chapters 23 through 25, you get ritual feasts that include some of the ritual sacrifices that we'd already seen. And then we kind of get an epilogue in chapter 26, which is this call to faithfulness. So that's a broad overview of the book of Leviticus. And next week, we'll look a little bit at these laws for ritual and moral purity and how that informs our worship. Week three, we'll look at feasts. Again, these corporate celebrations, feasts as worship services, and how that informs our worship. But tonight, I want to start with where Leviticus starts and look at sacrifices. Vertical reconciliation with God. And so you talk about all these things. And worship is big enough to include all those elements. We had a series here, I think it was our first summer, called Big Enough for Both, about just some dichotomies that are really dumb dichotomies because they're false choices where you say it's not about this or it's about that. And you might hear some people say, well, worship isn't songs on the weekend, right? It's not the songs we sing. It's the life we live. But you read the Bible, you realize that our God's big enough for both. Our worship of him is big enough for both, and it needs to include all of the above. And the point I want to look at in Leviticus is that with all these practices, they paint a picture of worship that's not a spectator sport. It's, something you, it's not something you watch. It's something you do. And, you know, so often worship in our church culture is, is we show up and it's kind of a spectator sport. But worship is meant to be our participatory sport and one we never clock out of. So this week's focus, that was a lot of introductory thoughts looking at Leviticus. This week's focus is sacrifices. And immediately that begs the question, why sacrifices? Maybe you got pets. Maybe you're an animal person. Like, why do we have to sacrifice these animals? Or, like, maybe you're a vegan. You're like, why have you got to sacrifice all these animals and eat them? Like, why? Why did he set it up like this? So it's a, it's, it's a big concept to tackle. But to start where sin made a mess of our relationship with God, we see first and foremost, again, all this is pointing towards Jesus. Jesus is coming. Even in Leviticus, we've already had prophecies pointing to Jesus. All the way back in Genesis 3, when God is proclaiming the curse, he's pointing to hope. In Genesis 3, to Jesus to come. But I love that God initiates, again and again in the Old Testament, relationships. It's like he can't wait for Jesus to come. He wants to relationship with his people so bad because he's loved that he, he creates covenants to show us that he wants to be present with humanity. He makes laws to show us how to walk and live in his presence. And God establishes these sacrifices for the sins that would separate his people from his presence. And in all this, God uses what's called accommodation using forms and practices that were familiar to those people so that he could later on invest them with deeper and truer meaning, right? Meet somebody where they're at in the language they speak, in a culture or a, a way that they understand, and then you can begin to lead them. And this form of worship wasn't odd to the Israelites. It's odd to us. It's a little weird, but it was the norm, right? Sacrifice was an essential part of religious life from the earliest times all over the ancient world. And when I look at all these different types of sacrifices in Leviticus. I kind of remember like the old iPhone commercials, maybe from like a decade ago, where it was like, you want to check the weather? It's an app for that. Right, you want to uh, get directions? There's an app for that. You want to read the newspaper? There's an app for that. You know, the commercials were just, there's an app for that. There's an app for that. You read the book of Leviticus, and it's like, oh, uh, you sin by doing X, 
There's a sacrifice for that. Oh, you stumbled doing Y? Don't worry, there's a sacrifice for that. Or you did Z? Don't stress it. There's a sacrifice for that. One day I'd love to just do a sermon series where it looks at each sacrifice and how it informs our worship. But, man, here will be the cliff notes. Because you look in Leviticus and there's the burnt offering. The burnt offering made a payment for general sin. It showed devotion to God. It was to turn away God's wrath, which I'll get to more of in a minute. Then there was the grain offering. The grain offering acknowledges that all we have is from God. And he's the one that provides, not us. And it was a way of saying thank you. And this following offering, the peace or sometimes called fellowship offering, it was another uh, offering that expressed gratitude and thanks. And it signified peace with God. Then we get the purification, sometimes called the sin offering, and that was to pay for unintentional sins of neglect or thoughtfulness, and it restored fellowship with God and reminded the Israelites that all sin is serious. There's not high-grade sins and low-grade sins. No, all sin separates you from God, and all sin needs to be paid for. And then lastly, there's the restitution or guilt offering, which was to pay for sins against both God and others, and it was offered along with compensation to the injured parties, those others that you might have sinned against. And it reminded the Israelites that, hey, sins have consequences, not just with God, but with others. So, again, this is a whole lot as we kind of introduce the book. But tonight I want to look at two reasons, two reasons out of many that we're given these sacrifices in the Old Testament. They tie directly into what Jesus would do when he came as a sacrifice for you and for me. But I believe there are also two factors and two realities that can help us and a long-distance relationship with God where, where we hear of God from a person, we hear of God from this over there, but no, 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 God wants to speak to us in our hearts, in our minds, so that we can step into profound, again, intimacy with this infinitely powerful God. And the first reason you see in Leviticus that they're given these sacrifices is access. Access. Because the gods of that time, these pagan deities, were distant, they were detached, they were not invested, they were not uh, interested for the most part. But you look at the Hebrew word for sacrifice is this word korban, and it means to come closer. And it pulls from this, this word in Hebrew where the root means to draw near. So where we immediately start reading Leviticus and it starts getting into these sacrifices and most of us would drift off, start skimming. For the Israelites who, who see this word for sacrifice that means come closer, to draw near to God, they would have been having their minds blown from the very first verses. When we start skimming, their, their jaws are dropping. So we need to understand that, but we also need to understand holiness. Not just the Hebrew word for holiness, but holiness in general. Because God is holy and at the heart of Leviticus we get this verse that informs most of the book. Leviticus 19, verse 2, where God says, you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So two things I notice immediately when I read this verse. The first is must. We're not really given an option. It's not really uh, do your best and forget the rest. No, you must be holy. We must be made holy. But then the second thing you think of is, okay, how? Because I know my life. I know on my best day, I'm not perfect which means I'm not righteous, which means I'm not holy. How do I have a relationship with this God who wants relationship when he says I must be holy? That's the problem, right? But God wants to open this door to access for us to draw near to him, and we can't just stroll into his presence because God is good, God is love, but he's also holy. And the, the best analogy I've, I've heard for this is guy, by a guy named Tim Mackey. 
And when you make an analogy for the word holy, holy means set apart and unique. It's kind of dripping in irony because it can't really be compared to anything because it's set apart and unique. But his analogy, it helped me, so hopefully it helps you. He says God's holiness is a lot like the sun because the sun is good. The sun gives life. We couldn't live without it. And the very goodness that generates life on earth is dangerous when you get too close. The closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. And if you get too close, it'll annihilate you. If a sinner stepped directly into God's presence, you might as well step right into the sun. Not because he's bad, but because he's so holy. So at the center of the tabernacle and at the center of what would eventually be the temple was a place called the most holy place. This was kind of like a separation that was was physical by the veil. And it's kind of like a a baby that's born with a weak immune system. It's got to be behind the plexiglass to protect the baby. Maybe that baby grows up with a weak immune system. You, you hear about uh, bubble children, bubble boys, bubble girls, where they, they had to be separated from other people because of germs and, and, and weak immune systems. So they can come close to people, but they can't have contact in some cases. Kind of like this in the most holy place, only wasn't the person on the inside being protected. It was those on the outside being protected, the sinful world outside being protected from this holy God. And if we're going to step into relationship with God, we realize we got to become holy because the Lord our God is holy. But for us to make that step, sin has to be dealt with. And again, I love that it's almost like God was just itching for a relationship with the Israelites because the book of Leviticus wastes no time before it gets to the sacrifices that would deal with sin and allow the Israelites to step into his presence. These sacrifices were symbols of repentance. They were symbols of obedience. These sacrifices in the Old Testament at these altars were like old school, Old Testament altar calls, right? We talk about altar calls where the work of Jesus on the cross, we respond to it. Maybe in a church service at an altar, praying, pursuing him. But that work of Jesus Christ on the cross, again, you might hear words like propitiation. It's a big word. But what it means is the wrath has been absorbed. The wrath of God has been satisfied. That debt that sin created was paid. That's propitiation. And in the sacrificial system, the animal symbolically took the sinner's place and paid and satisfied the debt. Because sin does leave a debt to be paid. It's important to realize that God, or excuse me, Jesus, didn't just appeal to mercy on our behalf. He he appealed to God's justice. Because he paid the full price of sin's curse so that we could receive the blessing. He appealed not just to God's mercy, but to his justice. Jesus had to go to the cross because a perfectly holy God can't compromise justice for forgiveness. He couldn't just close his eyes to our sins and injustice, so Jesus died for them. That's propitiation. That Jesus took the condemnation so we could have his commendation before God. He he stood condemned so that we could have his commendation before God. Our access to God is not based on our worthiness. It's not based on how good we did last week, how good we've done this last 24 hours or this past year. Our right standing before God is because of the worthiness of the sacrifice of the one who stands in our place because of Jesus Christ. So the day of atonement at the heart of Leviticus was this annual day of sacrifice for the nation. Where again, two goats stood in the place of the entire nation. It's the heart of Leviticus's text and its structure. And at the heart of this uh, whole sacrificial system, and in Hebrew it was called Yom Kippur, excuse me. But the Latin to English translation, when they were translating the Bible, they could have easily just translated it to the day of expiation. They could have. Expiation means the removal of sin and guilt. But the word atonement was chosen. 
because it speaks to a powerful restoration of relationship and unity, right? The, the word atonement, you might think, well, maybe it's got like a, a complicated etymology, right? How they came up with the word. Not at all, right? It just means at one, man, at oneness, at one. Unity, reconciliation between two parties to become one with each other. We see that this wasn't just justice served as retribution here in these sacrifices. It was justice served for restoration, a restoration of relationship, a restoration of access. Again, the promise of Leviticus was that an obedient Israel would experience a God who will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Pointing back to Genesis. But all of this, including the Day of Atonement, points forward to Jesus. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, it says, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. That's why Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Now, first century readers of this letter in the early church would have taken note of this wording, especially the word continually, because they knew what it meant to come into God's presence once a year, once a week, semi-regularly presenting offerings to God. But here we're told that our access is continual, so our worship can be continuous. 24-7, all the time. You don't have to join a monastery to do it. You just have this new relationship that allows access to God's presence anytime, anywhere. The question for us isn't whether God's available. He's opened the door to access. The question for us is do we avail ourselves to that availability and that access that's been restored? And let me encourage you, your prayer life is where we're reminded of that access that's been restored. If we're mindful of it, then, man, we're going to pray again and again. You talk about long-term or long-distance relationships and, and apps like FaceTime and all these technological advances that make long-distance relationships easier. All these forms of cell phones, all the upgrades they come up with, all the different apps they may do or upgrades to the, the iPhone that Samsung steals or vice versa, right? No matter how much they upgrade the technology, the most significant form of wireless communication you'll ever have is prayer, intimate interaction with our infinite God. And may we never take it for granted. May we avail ourselves to this availability in prayer. But the second reality that, or the second reason that sacrifice is given to us helps us take advantage of this access. And the second reason is assurance. The Hebrew word for burnt offering, it means ascending. So the sacrifice was burnt up, but it was literally going up, this aroma to God. And it signifies vertical reconciliation, our reconciliation as people to God, the reconciliation of humanity and humans with God. Reconciliation is just a big word that means God makes his enemies friends. As we see in 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul says, For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And it was the same with these Old Testament sacrifices. It was tastes of reconciliation. Because, you know, if you believe, if you believe in God and eternity, if you believe in heaven and hell, it only makes sense that you would desperately want to know where you stand, to have assurance. But with pagan gods, again, in that time and culture, you never knew where you stood with them. But God isn't like that boss that tries to motivate staff with the threat of, of layoffs or, or, or possible uh, uh, bonuses if you do well. He's, he's not like that at all. 
God is distinct from other gods of other religions because he wants to change, encourage, and motivate us, not by the fear of uncertainty, but by the security of his love. And you just look back at the sacrifices and offerings in Leviticus, there's the peace offering. Again, this was the offering that somebody would sacrifice to represent peace and fellowship with God. And what did you have to do with the meat from this sacrifice the day it was offered? You had to eat it. So you had to pause, sit down, and eat it. Don't rush back to whatever you were doing. Rest. Take a break and rest in the assurance. Have a barbecue. Have a meal celebrating the peace you have with God. Don't just rush back to trying to save yourself. No, rest in the assurance that you have peace and fellowship with God. I love that Leviticus also has this purification offering for unintentional sin. Like even the sins you might not even be mindful of that you need to be reminded of, God provided a sacrifice for this too. We get this picture of an Old Testament God sometimes that's wrathful and angry and just wanting to lash out. I see a God of grace who extends forgiveness even in our carelessness and our thoughtlessness. And then you look at all these sacrifices and others and you're reading about them and there's just detail after detail, after sometimes mind-numbing detail. And you're just like, why all the details, right? Couldn't, couldn't they just refer to their iPads or something like, why do we have to have all these endless details? And one reason I believe is because of belief at that time is that God's could or would smite you at any moment if there was an improper gesture or sacrifice. One strike and you're out. So God wants his people to have assurance. He gives them every detail, every step. Why does God want us to have assurance? I believe it's because your spiritual life will never take off in the way it should until you grasp the assurance that God wants you to have. Until you know that you are his and he is yours. Until that moment, your obedience will be limited. Your love will be stifled. Your confidence will be shaky at best. Your courage will be minimal. And you'll do good works only because you hope God will approve of you because of the good works. That's not loving obedience. That's self-preservation. Right? Only in the security of, of knowing God and knowing that you have assurance of his love will you obey him for his sake. You know, Raj doesn't understand me yet. He's two and a half. We adopted him from India. He doesn't understand a whole lot of our communication. But one thing I, I want him to know and I want to assure him of, and I assure him now, even knowing that he can't understand me yet, he doesn't have to earn my love. Right? My love is unconditional. Right? The fact that he was adopted doesn't change that. The fact that he has a history of abandonment doesn't change that. Right? My love is going to be there for him no matter what. I want him to have full assurance and a full grasp of that. Because I could make my love conditional and, and hope that based on that it will produce loyalty and love in him. But <laughs> that would produce fear-based obedience. And, and fear-based obedience turns into father-loathing rebellion if it goes on for too long. Maybe you know that from experience. But in John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus says, as the Father loved me, I have also loved you. God doesn't want us sitting around wondering about, or excuse me, Jesus didn't sit around wondering about his relationship with God the Father and whether he had assurance of that. And he doesn't want me to have a worry about it either. God wants us to have assurance because he wants the intimacy of sons and daughters, not the service of slaves. He wants the intimacy of sons and daughters, not just the obedience of slaves. First John Chapter 5, verse 13, John says, I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. This assurance should cause us, see again, this assurance should cause us to walk in the access we have. You read the verses right after this, 
He says, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our request, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. He's saying, look, I want you to have full assurance. And when we have that full assurance, we'll go to him in prayer. We'll go to him with requests because we know we have access when we need to ask for something or, or, or seek his face. He's there. And we can have full assurance of that. But I'm also mindful that the enemy's a deceiver. And there's such a thing as false assurance. False assurance. In 2001, a Barna study showed that nearly half of the adults in America have prayed a prayer of repentance at one time or another, and they believe because of that they're good with God. But uh, continually studying these people, a majority of them rarely, if ever, read the Bible, attended church, prayed, or did anything that lines up with the scripture they claim to hold as truth. And their assurance is found in this ritual exercise or a prayer prayed, but not in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the work he wants to do in their hearts. The posture of their heart never changed. Repentance, it's not just about a prayer at an altar. It's about the posture of your life resting on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the prayer is good. It's great. I'm not knocking, praying at an altar and asking Jesus into your heart or dedicating your life to him, but the prayer is only as good insofar as it verbalizes the posture of your heart. Like, I gave my life to Christ and prayed a prayer of just dedicating my life to him at an altar in a church, right, at the front of a sanctuary in tears praying. So there's value in that. But, man, when I left, his word became my bread of life. Prayer became my lifeline. The posture of my life was radically changed from that moment on. You know, salvation comes not because of a well-worded prayer, but the prayer's reflection of a posture that leans our hope and faith on the finished work of Christ. Faith that's focused on anything less than the work of Christ at the cross for assurance, it'll crumble. We don't just forget the posture, though. I think sometimes we forget the privilege of access and assurance. Christ tore the veil, but that massive gift can be misapplied when we fail to remember the privilege it is to worship God. The privilege it is to step into his presence. All these sacrifices that we so quickly skim over or forget, they should remind us of the cost of coming in to God's presence. They should remind us of the privilege of coming into God's presence. There's this chasm of sin bridged by the cross, paid for by the life of God's son, so that we can have intimate interaction with this infinite God. And sometimes we forget that there's a seriousness to that. But again, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God doesn't appreciate humor. Right? In the book of Psalms, it says he laughs at people that says he doesn't exist, right? Like God's up there laughing. I believe he reigns with a smile on his face, right? Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. When we get to heaven, we're going to be having a, a feast into eternity, right? There's joy, smiling. I'm not talking about we all need to be serious all the time. The problem isn't lighthearted worship. That's a problem. I hope we're lighthearted around here. We're known as a welcoming church, hopefully because we're lighthearted. Our yoke is easy and our burden is light. God doesn't want us carrying around heavy hearts. It's not light-hearted worship that's the problem when I say we forget the cost of the sacrifice. It's half-hearted worship. Half-hearted worship. Leviticus, when we, you get three verses in, God's asking for animals with no defect. He doesn't want just your leftover fruit. He wants your first fruits. He doesn't want your, your, your animal with three legs and a limp. No, he wants the animals with no defect. Not the one with the lazy eye, the, the one that you can't sell or make money off. He wants the best of your flocks. In Malachi, the Old Testament prophet, in the first chapter of his book, and when he gets into his prophets, he goes in on the Israelites for offering uh, these 
so-so animals to God and not the best of their flocks. And what's powerful is he doesn't say that's not good. He says it's, it's evil. You read these verses. He says, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is that not evil? You offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? How does that apply to us? We offer the lame and the sick when we give God the last fruits and the scraps of our time, of our focus, of our energy. It's not a sacrifice of our time and energy and focus. It's the scraps. How often, I ask myself this often, how often do I justify giving God all my sins but not the best of my time and my energy and my focus. I joyfully give God my worst. I joyfully say, here's my sin. Thank you, Jesus. I worship you for it. But then I begrudgingly give him my best. Worship is about what we value, attributing value and offering praise. It has a cost. Our worship, communion with him, cost God the life of his only son. Our worship, though, it can become half-hearted, where church becomes something we fit in if we can rather than exercising a blood-bought privilege by the life of Christ, where prayer becomes something we do before meals and as we're drifting off into sleep, sometimes we wake up like, oh, I was praying eight hours ago. (laughs) But it doesn't get prioritized because we forget it's a privilege that God prioritized so highly that he offered his son as a sacrifice for it. How many people in the church, people in that Barna study who would say they're following God, they miss out on his promises because they're satisfied with the fact that Jesus pursued them, but they've never picked up a pursuit of him. God has made himself available. We have assurance. We have access. Do we access that availability? And what's awesome is we don't have sacrifices to make. I've shared with y'all before. I read Leviticus, and I'm like, I'm so thankful I was called to ministry, like, now. I don't have to look at scabs and injuries and assess them. I don't have to sacrifice animals and deal with all that blood. I got it a lot easier, right? Ministry at all times has its weight, but I'm thankful I'm in ministry now because we don't have to make sacrifices, right? The Day of Atonement was the climax of the Old Testament sacrificial system, but Jesus' atonement concluded that system. Again, it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Jesus fulfilled the burnt offering as the perfect offering. He fulfilled the grain offering as the one who didn't just bring his first fruits. He gave his all for God and for others. Jesus fulfilled the fellowship offering as he is the way to fellowship with God. Paul said there's one God and one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. He fulfilled the purification offering by purifying us with his blood. He fulfilled the restitution offering by removing the consequences of our sin. Jesus was the sacrifice that every sacrifice in the Old Testament points forward to and the one which we can look back on in faith. And we join ourselves, though. We we can actively join ourselves to his sacrifice. We do it in two ways in the church. The first is baptism, right, where you go under the water and you come up, and it's this symbol of being one with Christ in his death and his resurrection. The second way is communion. Communion is this reminder of Jesus' body and blood given for us. Jesus told us, do this in remembrance of me. That's why we take communion. So we're going to close tonight. We're, we're going to take communion. we got 10 minutes left. It's just the, the, the spiel we always give. You don't have to be a member to take communion here at City Life. We simply ask that at some point in your life, Jesus became Lord of your life. You said, Jesus, you're not just my Savior. You're my King. And if, if you've never done that before, tonight we'd love to pray for you. Make tonight the night. But if we could have the worship team come up and the ushers are going to bring the tables out. I just want to close with, it's Hebrews 4 in the message version. Hebrews 4, and this is the message version. It says, now that we know what we have, 
Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God. Let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing. He's experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. See, he says, now that we know what we have, now that we have this assurance, he says, we have ready access to God. He says, don't let that slip through your fingers. So tonight, I want to partake in communion at the end because it is a reminder of the access. It is a reminder of the assurance we have. And as we remind ourselves of that assurance, let's step into, just for the next five to ten minutes, another time of worship. As it says in this passage, let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. So let's practically now, let's walk up and take the elements. Remembering the sacrifice that gives us access. Remembering the sacrifice that gives us assurance. Not because of anything we've done. Because of the work of Jesus at the cross. Not because of anything we've earned to have right standing with him, but because of the work of Jesus at the cross. His flesh and his blood represented in these elements, given for us, that we can have full assurance and have access to God. So again, you don't have to be a member here. We simply ask that at some point you've given your life to Christ. And if you never have, or honestly, if you need prayer for anything, we're going to go back into worship, but I'll be here. I'd love to pray for you. But let's take the elements. You can come down the center aisle and fan back out. Let's take those elements in our pews as we worship Jesus and thank him again for the atonement that allows us to have an at-oneness, a, a, a reconciliation with God. The God who pursues us, as we sang about in our first worship set, the God who initiates again and again. Jesus was coming the entire Old Testament. I love that God doesn't wait. He finds ways to step into relationship with his people through covenants and laws and sacrifices. But tonight, God, we thank you, God, for the sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the atonement in Jesus Christ that can inform our worship tonight and forevermore, Lord God. Jesus, we thank you, and tonight we remember you in this partaking of communion, and we worship you together in Jesus' name.